Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Elizabeth. Elizabeth Eintema is president and founder of the Dance Data Project, DDP, was founded in 2015 as a simple database and officially launched as a 501c3 nonprofit in 2019. Since then, our startup has released 11 studies, two guides to global opportunities for choreographers, a choreographer checklist, and financial literacy checklist, a global and growing list of female leaders, choreographers, and designers in the industry, and a virtual interview series. Well, that's important right now. (laughs) Global conversations in, so far, three parts. Our mission is to inform gender equity in ballet through data analysis, advocacy, and programming. That's not what you usually hear when we're thinking about dancing, okay? Like I know, right? Data and stuff. Right. Um, I, um, side note, I didn't tell you this when we get started, but at one point in time, I was a certified PIO instructor. And if you're familiar with PIO, it does take some choreography. And the reason I didn't go further with it is because I am not coordinated. (laughs) (laughs) That could be kind of of a problem. Megan, thank you so, so much for this opportunity. Well, thank you for coming on today. This sounds interesting. I'm like, data. And I'm like, my words are not my friend. I just kept like stumbling over. No, please don't worry. So the hysterical Uh, thing about this is that I'm an English major and I'm not good at math. And I have, uh, I have Phi Beta Kappas in statistics and math on my team. And I'm looking at their work and correcting it. So Wow. It, anything can happen if you are really, really driven and passionate. Um, and also, I guess the other message is common sense actually means a lot. <laughs> I can be looking at something and wait, go, wait, wait, that's just not right. right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about why we do what we do. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of little girls and some little boys going off to ballet class every year, every week, every month, every day around the world. And at every single level, the ballet industry is dominated by women, except leadership, right? So little girls, very often there's one boy in their class. And if you look at the audience demographics, it's 70% women. And if you look at who gives the money, it's 70% women. And who shows up in Saturday afternoons, moms and their little girls, and then you can get into the competition circuit, which I know is true outside of dance and the costumes and the private lessons and everything else is run by women, right? I heard they're very pricey. (laughs) They're incredibly pricey, right? And, And the competition circuit has gotten much, especially with social media, but it has gotten much, much bigger. Um, whether in or out of ballet, and there are kids on the road all the time. There are people homeschooling their children to do this. And yet, when you look where the money is, and we can talk a little bit about how much money is actually involved, billions and billions of dollars, there are almost no women. That's insane. 
Yeah. So, so the women are doing all the work in the the <laughs> the bottom part of this. You got hierarchy. it. That's exactly and- right. So in almost any small town in America, right? I mean, if if there's more than like a truck stop or a Walmart or something, there might very well be a dance studio, right? And it's usually run by a woman, and she's usually not making much money, and she's hiring teachers, gig teachers, right, who are making even less money. And as you go up the pyramid, right, to the top, top companies in the United States. So when we, are, when we looked at the figures, I was kind of blown away. So we just completed our most recent study. So we're now at like 13 studies. But how's this for some money? So the largest 50 ballet companies in the United States, together their expenses are almost two thirds of a billion dollars. And that's just the big companies, right? And the top 10 companies, so San Francisco Ballet, the the really big ones uh, make up 60% of that combined budget. So we've got a situation where the big boys, and I do mean the boys, have most of the influence, almost all the money. And there's only one woman leading one of those companies, a woman named Lourdes Lopez in Miami City. And have you, Megan, have you heard of the phrase glass cliff before? Yes. Yes, I have. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. But explain it for everybody listening. Okay, I will. So for um, those of your listeners who haven't heard about this, it's the phenomenon where women and people of color, and particularly women of color, don't get a job unless the organization is on the brink of bankruptcy or there's been a massive scandal. And that's really true in ballet, which I find fascinating. So most of the most of the few women who do have jobs, unless they've been in that seat for 40 or 50 years, something has gone terribly wrong. There was a scandal, there was a bankruptcy, et cetera, particularly at the upper end. Yeah, they find, um, so I'm a psychology major. And okay, there we go. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I'm familiar with that because when you're studying social psychology, they talk about the glass ceiling and the glass cliff. Uh, which seem to be like opposing, but not really, you know, it's hard for women to reach the, the upper echelons, but if something big happens, they want somebody to throw under the bus. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so they'll have a woman take charge and the best thing they see that could come out of it is she pulls them out of whatever it is. The worst thing that could come out of it is, oh, Hey, we can blame it on her when things yep. go wrong. Yes, exactly. Uh, And then if things do go wrong, we never have to do it again because see, she can't handle it. And for my my friends in business, what you often see is that, and this is actually replicated in the world of ballet and dance, um, even if a company is started by a woman, um, if things go well and the company gets bigger, when she retires or sometimes even before she retires, the board of directors will then find a prestige candidate and guess what prestige looks like male exactly white white male predominantly (laughs) exactly exactly um you know the big draw the big get so you know you sort of wonder why does this woman care about this and ballet is kind of still in some ways the feminine ideal um and it denotes luxury and sophistication and everything else so you'll see lots lots of beautiful bodies right 
But then you look at who actually gets to speak and you look at who gets to create and you look at who's getting the pensions and gets the great jobs. And the pyramid narrows and narrows and narrows. Um, and it was, I sat in the audience and I think you probably have had this experience. I know a lot of people have, a lot of women in particular. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Oh yeah. And it's like a burr in your butt or somebody poking you in between the shoulders going, come on, come on, come on, come on. You got to do something. And once you've seen it, it's just like, you, you can't leave it alone. Right. I'm sure you've had that experience. Oh, over and over about all sorts of kind of things that I've been through in my life. <laughs> were you, were you kind of a, um, I was very, very docile in some ways, but when I got riled up, I mean, I was, I, I was a troublemaker, not in the let's go have fun, but stand up, stick up your hand and go, this isn't right kind of troublemaker. That's recently become me uh, when I was younger. Um, I went through some trauma when I was younger. So my fight, flight and freeze a response yep. is all messed up. <laughs> um, so I'm a freezer. I'm a freezer. And if freezing doesn't, freezing doesn't work, I would flight. I'd run in. I'm, you know, I don't like, I didn't like conflict. And it was only the last couple of years where I started speaking up and saying like, you know, I've been seeing these things and this is not okay. And people are like, what, what, where is she oh, coming wait, this from? This is great. So that, <laughs> so, I mean, this is you coming into your own, right? Yeah. No, ex- people don't like it though. They like it when you fit that, that box that they put you in. And when you break out of it and you're like, no, I actually have opinions and I have things to say and none of this is okay. They don't like that very much. Yeah. And I will tell you that gets even more so um, as you get older. Um, I am um, a recent grandmother as of um, my, my uh, grandson's about to turn a year old. Congratulations. Thank you. He's adorable. He's also massive. He's ginormous kid. (laughs) Um, The Viking genes express, but anyway, you know, you get to a certain age and people have their view of who you are and what you should be. And I know you're on the East coast. Um, I'm from the East coast, but you know, you get, you get into a certain, you know, in the Midwest and certain like, okay, this is your job and this is who you are and you're a mom and you're going to run your kids to the soccer game and you're going to, you know, do whatever it is, make, yeah. you know, set a nice table and everything. And if you start moving out of that and start moving out of that mold, people get, they don't just get, um, puzzled they have very strong reactions you're yeah. not supposed to be doing this how dare you sort of thing have it, you run I, into that at all yeah I think they see it as a threat to their beliefs and their lifestyle you know I think that's what it is because they believe that the woman has a certain role in in a household and when you don't fit that role it's a threat to their beliefs like they don't want to have to think about like how their beliefs or how they see things is wrong or different, like how things don't work exactly like that. And I think that's any, anything that comes along that goes, like, not everybody, but a lot of people, when it goes against their beliefs, they, you know, the way they perceive the world, they perceive that as a threat. Um, yeah, and I, I you agree. Know, people think we're weird. So with my husband's job, he wasn't, he, he wasn't home a lot to be able to cook and do the things. So I took on the typical, like stay at home mom role. 
Well, in the last couple of years, we, the kids are all in school. We've been slowly moving away from that. I have a job. I am in going into a grad program in the fall, like, and he's been home a lot. So he's been cooking and he's been helping clean. And when I talk about that, people are just like, what? I'm like, yeah, he's home all the time. Like what? (laughs) Why wouldn't he? Like, that makes no sense. But you know, people see it as if like, um, this one guy he used to work with, uh, that I was friends with on social media, uh, was very old fashioned in his views and seemed to think like my husband was letting me run rampant with all of these opinions that I shouldn't have because I'm a woman. <laughs> and when did this start? I got to tell you, I'm a lot older than you. I was in some ways a great deal more hopeful in the 1980s than I am now. There's sort of this rigid role playing and stuff like that yeah. I don't know where it's I don't know where it's come from the other thing Megan and I would argue and we can when you've when you've done your graduate degree we should come back and talk about this and you can tell me if I'm way off base but um, if you do something different if you open up new doors I think you're right it's threatening but I also think it's because maybe maybe it, it doesn't meet expectations as you said but also because it people start thinking, well, why can't I do that? Well, should I be yeah. doing that? Why am I not pushing myself? That that leads to shame. And I do think that most pushback I get from women, at least, is they somehow feel ashamed that they're not doing what I'm doing. And so they want to shame me in turn. And it's it's taken me a long time to realize that and to sort of say, look, you do you. You be happy doing, I have no expectations for you, but do your best to support me, right? Right. Because women have got to stop undermining each other. And I, boy, I hope it's just my generation. And I hope girls and women have learned to compete, you know, a little more openly in sports, et cetera, business. But I, you know, all I wish is the best for everybody, but, but don't undermine what I'm doing because there's something that's going on inside you. Right. And I still run yeah. into that. You know? Oh no, I run into it too. I have hope for Gen Z. I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping yeah. they are the ones that are going to save us all because they, for the most part, I know there's some very, I know there's some Gen Zers that are still like in the very like old fashioned is the way I'm going to put it mindset because that's how they were brought up. But a lot of them, they're like pushing the boundaries they're speaking up. They're saying, no, this is not okay. No, this is not how things need to go. And, you know, they're shaking stuff up. So I have hope that they're going to save us. <laughs> I do too, but I will say um, one of the things that I find is an absolute obsession in the United States with youth. And if it's 15 or 16 or 17 and new, it's never been done before. So at the, at the you know, age of 62, I'm going to hold my hand up for the wisdom of older women who get pushed sometimes into a corner. You know, if a guy gets gray hair and a pot belly, people assume he's just gotten smarter, right? right? Every pound he adds around his waistline makes him smarter. And women are somehow diminished, but there is so much wisdom and support. And they have been some of, I mean, I have mentors in my in my 20s. They're, you know, 40 years younger than I am. But I have women in their, in their 80s and 90s who are some of my strongest supporters. And it is, it's really a gift to have them in your life. No, I agree. I think 
you know, we all have that, that role that, you know, maiden mother crone, like all these things that, that we work through and people think the crone is a bad thing. And I'm like, no, that's the person with all the wisdom. That's the person with all the guidance. This is the person that they're no longer like in that role of raising children. They're able to guide the next, you know, these younger people, because they're not just focused on raising their kids. And, you know, we all have a place. And I think we don't give enough respect. I shouldn't say respect your elders, but we don't try to get, we don't try to get the, like you said, the wisdom, the guidance from people who've already been there and done that. And sometimes, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it doesn't fit. Um, But sometimes it really does. Like (laughs) I tell my kids all the time, my, my teenager uh, all the time, like, please, learn from my mistakes. Don't repeat them. Like I know some things I've been there. I've done that. Like, please take my advice seriously. And sometimes she does. And sometimes she doesn't. Well, you know, a lot of my work, I think I mentioned this before we started recording. A lot of my work is done in honor of my grandmother who, um, was a, um, only the second, I believe, woman to graduate with a hard sciences degree from the University of Illinois in 1920. Wow. And a few months later, women got the vote. She taught at historically black colleges and universities. She was an early environmentalist and um, she tied herself to the Illinois State House in support of the Equal Rights Amendment, wearing suffragist uh, white. And as we know, Illinois didn't ratify it in time. I'm still hoping it could happen. But she was hopping over fences in her 80s and 90s, collecting seed samples because she was worried about biodiversity. And her collection actually ended up at the University of Illinois. I mean, she was so far ahead of her time. I think I was telling you she was running up and down pyramids in Mexico in her 80s and whale watching in her 90s. Um, it, It was every time I think about her, it's like, all right, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Pick yourself up. Get out there. Yeah, it sounds like your grandmother was progressive before it was cool. <laughs> she was. Um, she was super progressive. And actually, her father, my great grandfather, was a huge supporter of First Nation Native American rights. Um, he spoke, a, I think, three or four dialects of uh, or different languages. And yeah, she was. Um, I don't know if she was one of the founding members, but she was one of the early supporters of the NAACP in the United States um, and a Republican back when Republican meant enfranchisement, equal vote. Before the party switch. (laughs) Holy, before the party switch. And I'm, I'm still, I'm still like totally confused by that. I am currently reading Stamped from the Beginning, um, the America's, American's History on Racism. Um, by uh, uh, Kendi uh, Abrams. It, yeah. Im, yeah. Abraham. Yeah. Is it, is it Imbrams? Abrams? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to uh, link it up in the show notes, but uh, we are right at the cusp of that switch in the book. Like I'm almost done with the book and it's like right at the cusp of the history where it switches. And I'm like, Please explain to me how this happened. <laughs> well, there is, if you want to link this, there's an absolutely wonderful book. I think it was published in the early 90s or the late 80s called Whatever Happened to Kansas. And it talked about 
how Kansas used to be an avowedly socialist, pro-labor, agrarian, you know, a lot of the farmers would, would create farm collectives. And what the, the author talks about, and I'm trying to remember his name, is how, how people ended up voting against their own interests, uh, which is just extraordinary to me. Um, but it's exactly what you're talking about, sort of people being encouraged to identify um, against their against their own interests. So people who are working class, not you know, not voting together. I'm, I'm still a bit. I was a poli sci major in college. I'm still really, really muddled by that. It is so confusing, and I think that it's just become like an identification. Like, I, I mean, I understand politics was always an identification, but it's really become like a core of who people are nowadays. Um, and it's, it's kind of terrifying in a way, because instead of seeing, oh, well, maybe this isn't working or maybe this is wrong. It, it doesn't actually work with, you know, it doesn't actually help me they feel like they have to vote party lines. They feel like they have to agree with all the things that their party, you know, says. And as I tell people, I'm like, I do not identify as a Democrat. I identify as a progressive because I feel like a lot of my, um, my beliefs and my opinions come from a more of a progressive realm. And I find that a lot of Democrats are more like, closer to the moderate end of the spectrum. And I'm like, no, let's shake it up. Let's change it all. <laughs> That's really funny. And see, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle, which means everybody's always yelling at me at cocktail parties or wherever else, because I agree with everybody and I don't agree with anybody. Um, I will say this though, if you're, if you really um, don't rethink a lot of your assumptions during the pandemic, you haven't been paying attention. Oh, I yes. mean, my God, one in five children in the United States going to bed hungry. What the ever loving hell, right? Um, and they were able to provide free lunches or free breakfasts and lunches to every school in the United States. That was part of one of the COVID relief packages. If you were able to do that, why couldn't you do that, that the whole time? Like, yeah. I will say I adore our mayor, Lori Lightfoot in Chicago. She's had a really rough go of it for a number of different reasons. But um, one of the things they've done is institute a summer meal program. They're not even mm -hmm. calling it lunch because so many kids who are out of school don't get fed. And other than dance data project, we've gone way, 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 away from dance. Um, <laughs> I, I spent my husband, and I spent a lot of time thinking about interventions and where to best use our money, et cetera. Um, and I look at a lot of the, you know, arts programming and stuff like that, you know, learn to play the trumpet and save your life. Fine. But if you have a 10 year old kid that hasn't eaten for a day and a half, he or she is not going to be able to concentrate on whatever it is you're trying to teach them. I think we need to get much smarter about how we deliver, whether it's arts programming or after school, et cetera. I mean, you have kids, you know what it's like. You got to yeah. feed them. I would get home sometimes at 6.30 at night and the kids were climbing the wall and it was like, you know, monkeys, they're throwing coconuts from the trees. They're screaming and yelling. <laughs> and my husband's yelling at me and going, why are they behaving like this? And I just look at him and say, have you fed them? And his response would be, well, they didn't tell me they were hungry. And I'm like, well, of course they didn't. They're, 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 they're small children. They don't know. 
sure enough, you know, grilled cheese sandwich and a cup of tomato soup later, and they'd be asleep on the floor, Megan. They didn't yeah. even make it to bed, right? Yeah. But it, it's it's so many things like this, very basic things. So I think we look too much as at the broad spectrum. Like we we need to oh, wow, we see like mental health needs to be helped. So let's, you know, institute these programs, musical programs, help with kids' mental health. But we don't get down to the nuance of like, well, if that, like you said, if that kid's not hungry, they're not gonna be able to, if they haven't had healthcare, for example, like dental care and the teeth hurt or or the, you know, they sprained an ankle. It's probably something more serious that sprained an ankle. They can't go see the doctor because their family can't afford it. They're going to be in pain. They're not going to be paying attention to these programs. So there's this like little nuances that we miss in these big arguments where people are like, let's just, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Instead of looking at like, well, what are the the smaller things that we need to do to actually help? Even, even how people look, perceive social um, issues. So I, um, mm-hmm. I, when I first came to Chicago, I didn't know anybody and folks laugh at it, but it does a lot of good. I joined the junior league and we actually got a um, bipartisan resolution passed in um, Springfield, uh, which recognized that homelessness is a problem of women and children. Uh, mm-hmm. Because what's visible is the guys living under the bridge abutments or living out of their cars. And what they don't see is um, because of divest- domestic violence and other issues, it's women and children. And that really changes how you provide services. And, you know, um, especially the city of Chicago, but a number of school districts were doing everything they could to keep these kids out of school because they would need to feed them and they need wraparound services and they need, you know, um, they need special plans. And the bureaucracy was doing everything it could to make it impossible to get these kids in school. But then, of course, what happens is if the kids aren't in school and they get too far behind, you can imagine how expensive it's going to be for society later. So we really pushed the city of Chicago school district to make it much easier to register your child, get them on an IEP, get them caught up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, definitely. And as a domestic violence survivor myself, I've, you know, I was very fortunate. I lived near my family and they were able to take me in with my kids, but I can't imagine a mom who has nowhere else to go? What do you do? You would go to a shelter and, and where do you go from there? You know what I mean? Like um, a lot of people talk about like snap benefits and we need to get rid of all these people sucking the system, but they overlook all the people, mind you, the, the amount of fraud when it comes to that stuff is like very minuscule, but anyways, they overlook all these single parents trying to, mm-hmm. you know, make ends meet. Cause that was me at, like out of high school with, I was a teen mom. I had a daughter and I was trying to better my life. I was working full time and I was going to college and trying to make ends meet. And, and, and I was on welfare. You know, I was one of those people that were, were using those benefits. So, and, you know, people overlook that they, they're like, Oh, but Megan, you were the exception. I'm like, no, I actually wasn't the exception. Yeah. yeah no, 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 no. I, yeah. <laughs> so one of the, one of the things that we actually made, um, um, Trying to trying trying to bring it back a little bit to dance theater yes. project. We I was um, just gonna you know like okay. how does this all relate to dance? So like it actually does. Here we go. It actually does. So on dance data projects website, there's a whole entire social media campaign called connecting the dots, and I was getting so frustrated uh, because you would hear fund the arts, fund the arts, fund the arts, and 
of course, most of these organizations are run by men. And then I was seeing all the data coming down that, you know, like in December of 2020, all of the net jobs lost were by women. Four to one job loss for women. That's why they call it a she session. And no daycare, the daycare's closed, elder care burdens, and nobody was connecting the dots between just the tsunami of job losses in the arts and women being at home with their kids and with um, elder care obligations. And most recent estimates, it, were, it's, it, it was previously that for women to catch up to men um, in terms of equal pay, it would be a century. It's now 135 years. Oh, wow. It's gone out that much because there are women who were climbing the ranks, getting ahead. They're dropping out of the workforce at an extraordinary rate. And I, you know, I would talk to these male arts advocates and they'd say, oh, Liza, you know, that's not an arts question. I'm like, the hell? Yes, it is. And these countries that you're saying, oh, we should be like them because they fund the arts and they're talking about Israel and Australia and New Zealand and, and Northern European countries. And I'm like, Did, have you noticed that those are also the places that have paid family leave? They have local, what they call creches. There's, you know, the childcare workers are paid decently. And here's the big thing, dads there take their leave. So in the United mm-hmm. States, even if a male employee has, is offered leave, 87% of men are back to work within a week. Yeah. And you look in Europe and the man gets six months and the woman gets six months and they can take it at the same time or they can take it after each other. And the men actually take the leave. And so don't tell me that the lack of support structure doesn't have an impact on the arts economy. Of course it does, right? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, And uh, it just is baffling. These people don't, uh, people don't see all of these issues. Like you said, paid maternity leave, paid paternity leave. Um, One, most of that doesn't exist, period. Um, but when you do see it, sometimes you are missing that paternity leave um, aspect because they're like, oh, moms are the only ones that need time off. No, yeah. yep. that, you know, dads need time off too. You know, parents of any gender identification need <laughs> time off with their kids. Yeah, and it's actually, it's one of the indicators of a child growing up to be a successful adult is um, that dad took some time off with them. And it, because wow. the dads, the dads bond more, they mm-hmm. feel more connected and more invested in how their children do. I mean, it really revolutionizes everything. I will say though, Megan, you probably know this, whether it's the military, right? Or it's philanthropic institutions. It's usually men, um, very often, you know, upper middle class, usually white men running them. And they don't even think about this. I mean, the Americans for the Arts, their entire research staff is male. And they were, they had the numbers, but they never did the calculations on gender differences. They finally started to do it on racial disparity. But I'm like, you know, most of your workforce is female. It's a massive, massive industry. You might want to actually think about tracking where women are and, and, you know, three men they're like oh wow we were gonna do that we did we 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 never we never did anything about it i'm like this is why you have to have a woman preferably a mom you know helping run major institutions so you you think through these things 
Um, and that's true whether it's not-for-profit or the military or for-profit institutions. Um, and I also think that folks in the United States don't realize how much of an anomaly they are in the world, right? The fact that we don't give leave, the fact that we don't have, um, you know, daycare centers that are underwritten and are in the neighborhoods and are well-staffed by people who are respected and earn more than the minimum wage. We are the outlier, yeah. right? We're the outlier of all of the the richest nations or richest countries in the entire world. We are the outlier on almost everything, paid maternity leave, healthcare, like, yep. you know, equity, like we go down the line and we're missing like all of the, how come if all of these other countries can do this, we still aren't there yet. Like it, it's just baffling to me that like, we're the, the richest, if not one of the richest countries in the entire world and we're not doing these things for... Yeah, I mean, for sure, not every place is a paradise, but I think you do see, you know, workable models and, you know, Sweden and Norway and Iceland can call themselves socialists, but I mean, they're, they're not. They're state-supported capitalist societies. I mean, there is income disparity, et cetera, but at least they have a rational discussion about it. And I don't know whether it's, you know, the um, more sort of fundamentalist religion, you know, that keeps creeping into it. Uh, you know, this, this idea that women should be at home. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. As I said, I was in some ways more hopeful in the 80s because whatever the issue, at least there was the ability in the room in the room, room in the room, how that space in the room to disagree in a sort of civil way. And now every single issue, it feels to me is like, not only are we gonna disagree, but you're a bad person or you're ignorant or you're evil. Um, and, and that doesn't leave a lot of room for civil discourse, right? I think we see more on the state level civil discourse than we do on the federal level. Amen, amen. Yeah. Because when it gets federal, it becomes very, very like party line where we're seeing one on a state level, it's less so. It's becoming more, but it's less so. In states, you're seeing more on a state level, you're seeing more bipartisan like legislation where in the federal government, that's lack. Okay, we are way, way off of ballet here. But yeah. for any of your listeners that are geeks about this stuff, which I totally am, uh, the Brookings Institute just issued a fascinating new paper on blue cities, red states. One of the most interesting, fascinating reads. And it also gets you out of your own little headspace and your, you know, whatever you're in, Connecticut or Illinois, and gives you a sense of what's going on in the rest of the country. And uh, the author talks about, for example, Kay Ivey, who's the governor of Alabama, working with, and I actually happen to know him, he's amazing, the mayor of Birmingham, right? Um, so majority black city, um, very Republican state, but their economic future is tied to the city. And so they do have areas that they overlap. So I could not agree with you more. Yeah. Well, before, you know, since we are getting low on time, I'd like to bring it back to the dance, <laughs> which is all sure. interconnected. You already said how it's all interconnected, how, you know, it and especially indeed. right now in the pandemic, you're seeing these 
uh, these disparities come to light, especially like you said, in a female dominated industry, now you're having moms having to stay home with their kids because their kids are virtual in school. They can't afford the childcare. Uh, women are the heart have been the hardest hit when it comes to job loss in the pandemic, you know, yep. Who is the, who is the person in the family that tends to be the one that when it comes to children and childcare and having to do the things. And, you know, if you have a choice between this person's job or this person's job, it tends to be the female in the relationship. And particularly because I'm, I'm going to bring it, I really am going to swing it back to dance data projects. So of the creative industries, right. Um, as identified by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the most male, the best educated, and the oldest are architects. And they're highly, highly male. At the bottom is dancer choreographers. Most female, youngest, most likely to live near the poverty line, um, and the least educated, right? Because if you think about it as a dancer, if you're good, you get scooped up into the system at age, you know, your first contract at age 16, and then you're ejected at, you know, maybe, maybe if you've had a really long career, your mid thirties and you haven't gone to college, some actually haven't even graduated high school in the old days and you don't have any other skills. So what do you do? You become a dance teacher. And I'm like, why is that the case? Um, so I, I guess for me, ballet is a microcosm of women's situation in the United States. And I noticed by the way, that a lot of your previous podcasts were about women's self-image and toxic culture and taking control of your own narrative. And boy, I wish some of your experts could come in and talk to um, and look at ballet and dance because it's a culture of silence and conformity. Um, it is, by the way, it was documented in the New York Times and you probably, Megan, would find it hardly surprising that Jeffrey Epstein searched for his next victims in dance studios in New York City. Yeah, I would have imagined dance studios and modeling agencies. That would have been my guess. And there's a big overlap, right? Mm -hmm. So so to answer the question that we probably should have hit earlier, but we're having too much fun. Um, the reason that I looked at dance is because it's so female dominated. Um, a, not, a number of the other arts, you don't see a lot of women leaders, but none of them are driven by the engine of female underpaid or unpaid labor. But there's also sort of... Um, a cultural aspect that I find really disturbing, which is, you know, the perfect ballerina um, sitting in the corner, completely quiet, completely malleable. What are we setting up our daughters for if we don't start to question the narrative around it, right? Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, there's so much pressure for them to look a certain way and act a certain way. And, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking to me because it's so beautiful, like dance and not just ballet, but all dance, like all, all of it. Right? It's so beautiful, but they're like many other, you know, female dominated industries. It's there's so much pressure on women to look a certain way and act a certain yeah. way to fulfill Amen. a certain role. It's so true. And it's made worse on social media, right? Mm -hmm. Because now all these dancers, you know, it's how many clicks you can get in it apparently does have an effect on whether or not you get a professional contract, but when your wow. body is constant, Oh yeah. When your body is constantly on display and you're thinking of your self-worth based on, you know, everything about how you look. And I'll tell you, I, I was there myself. I modeled and 
I danced for a while and you spend, you know, your formative years going through puberty, critiquing minutely every single thing that's wrong with you, right? And I, I really do question that at the same time that I love dance and I love ballet. So it's, it's, you know, it's this mixture. But the reason I decided to tackle this is nobody was keeping the numbers. And until you can measure something, you can't change it. Um, until we came along, people were sort of saying, oh, there isn't a leadership problem. Oh, women don't want to choreograph. And at least now we have a floor, right? We have the basis yep. for a discussion, right? So what's the goal? What is the goal of all the research? Because to hear research from, like you said, an English major um, <laughs> who uh, was in dance uh, and, and never saw you know yourself as like anything when it comes to math or statistics, now you're, that's what you're focusing on. What, what's the point? What is, what is so the, the end game? So the goal is, I mean, I think we've already accomplished a lot of what I wanted to, because people, you know, some of the big companies run by men are still running, running, running away from us as fast as they can. Right. But they can no longer deny that there is a problem because we've documented and I encourage everybody to go on our website. Um, what I'd like to do is now start thinking through how do we make a change top-down culture? Um, I, I, you know, you can get a little despairing. I mean, if I were, for example, um, a person of color in the United States, they've been stuck at 4% leadership in publicly owned companies for, I think, 25 or 30 years, despite all the initiatives, et cetera. I hope we can do better than that. Um, but that's stage two, but somebody had to do, you know, do the work I'm right. doing now. Um, so I'm, that's what I'm wrestling with is what initiatives would help, but you mentioned in the beginning, we now have a leaderboard that has 700 names on it. And these are women whose contributions were being erased by history. There are 700 names up there of costume, you know, set, lighting designers, et cetera. And we're going to try and fill them in. So it's there for people to see, right? And I, I, I would like to see more women who want to choreograph, who want to lead companies, get the opportunity, right? So I'm going to be in this for another 10 or 15 years. Maybe we can talk again then. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'd absolutely love that. What can people do to support what you're doing? Oh, golly. Okay. So very basic stuff. I'm still mostly self-funding this. I mean, I've decided this is, I'm by God, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to go in. I've been told so many times, just right. leave, sit, sit down, shut up. So we do have a donate button. If you have a little girl, a little boy that's in ballet, I would consider even just sending us 20 bucks. We also have great swag. Um, the other thing is be an upstander. Don't be a bystander. If you see racist, sexist, misogynistic stuff going on in your local dance studio, say something because you're, so, many of these, so many of these kids are getting gaslighted, right? And I'm, this is right back into the toxic culture and domestic violence and everything else. Um, they're like yearly scandals and abuses. So we have a series of checklists on our website. Um, one, of them, one of them is around sexual harassment and assault prevention. Just print it out, bring it to your local dance studio if your kid dances. They're super, super simple things to do, right? Like you, your child should not be following um, a professional dancer, teacher on social media, and they shouldn't be following them back. You know, the door should always be open. There should never be 
somebody, you know, a male teacher in, um, in girls' locker rooms, which you see all the time. There's just some basic stuff. So if you want to help your kids or help your neighbor's kids, um, just keep an eye out and, and stand up for the next generation, right? So as we wrap up the podcast today, what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with? Ah, I've been thinking about that a lot. It's a magical question. (laughs) It is. Um, It's going to make sense. Don't give up. Every single experience in your life can be used to make yourself a better person, to do that thing you want to do. And if it isn't clear right now at this moment, if you're knee deep in laundry and you've got three screaming kids or a spouse or a family who doesn't believe in you, keep going. Eventually, if you don't give up, you will get there. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Megan, it's been so much fun. I feel like we should be continuing to talk. I might show up on your doorstep with, uh, with something to eat and drink and we could hang out. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.